0: Alright, good morning everybody. What a blessing it is for us to be able to gather like this today, to come together because of Jesus. I'm pretty sure that's become pretty clear, that's why we're here already uh, this morning and to sit under his word and to lift up his name, to end up asking that question, who is who's like you? Now, if you don't know me, my name's Tony, I'm one of the pastors here and it's my privilege Uh, to be opening God's Word with us today. And um, so as we do, it might be helpful, in fact it will be helpful, for you to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. I'm just going to move this back a bit, because I think that might help that echo. Matthew chapter 1. Just a heads up, today, I don't know how sleepy you are, how tired you are, but you're going to need to engage your mind fairly actively today, so have that Bible open or have that phone open, it will help you. Take notes, whatever you do, um, whatever you do uh, that will help you think. Well, I wonder how many of you enjoy reading biographies. Uh, I certainly did, for, there was a time in my life when I actually couldn't get enough of them. I've almost got probably one bookshelf full of them uh, in my office, so we're happy to show you if you're, or happy to lend any of those to you. Um, But yeah, I still enjoy them from time to time. And I think the thing we love about biographies, if we read them, uh, is how they enable you to get to know someone um, as you read. As you read, you discover more and more about them. You'll get to know them more. You get to know who they are. You get to know what they were like. You get to know what their life was about. Often you will discover, as you read someone's biography, what kind of impact they had on the world, which may be why there's a biography in the first place, because they had a significant impact, uh, definitely in their life, but not, all, not only in their life, also sometimes in their death and the legacy that they may leave behind. We are today diving into a series on Matthew's Gospel and uh, we're going to be looking, as we do that, and if you like, one of the four biographies of Jesus that we have in the New Testament. Traditionally, we've called them Gospels, which simply means announcement. That's what Gospel means. Um, but we're going to spend a number of weeks, right through till about Easter, in fact, in the Gospel of Matthew. So here's just a bit of an introduction to the Gospel of Matthew, which will help us when we dig into the detail. This is kind of stepping back a little bit and just trying to understand what's Matthew about, when, it, when was it written and all that sort of stuff. So it was written in about AD 60, Matthew's Gospel, and it was written on a manuscript made out of what you would call what's called papyri leaf. And that flags something for us straight away if we know that, because it means that Matthew, as with all the other gospel writers, had limited amounts of manuscript on which to write their biography about Jesus. Which means that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew and the other Gospel writers were very, very intentional about what they chose to include in their Gospel. Which tells you that it's good for us if we can work out what their intentionality was Because then we'll know what it is that they're trying to highlight in particular about Jesus. The author, of course, is, as the gospel title says, Matthew. And this is Matthew, the tax collector. So he wasn't a very popular guy in his day. Tax collectors were very different in Matthew's day to they are now, and in the Jewish culture in particular, they were despised by their own countrymen. And the reason they were despised? Well, the Jewish people, as lots of nations at that time, were under the oppressive rule of the dominant world superpower at the time, that being Rome. And one of the ways that Rome maintained their dominance over all these different uh, ethnicities and nations was through their army. And that army had to be paid for. And so it was paid for through taxes. And what Rome would do is they would appoint someone from each people group or a bunch of people within a people group who would collect those taxes on behalf of Rome. Matthew was one of them. And so you can imagine what his neighbours thought of him. They thought Matthew was a co-conspirator in the oppression and the domination that they were experiencing, that he was actually helping the dominators by supporting them with the taxes. And worse than that, the tax collectors would actually extort their own people and not just collect what Rome wanted, but collect quite a handy bit for themselves and get wealthy off the top. Of their tax collecting. So, yeah, he wasn't real popular. That's why we have phrases like Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. Kind of the worst. That was Matthew. But in chapter 9, verse 9, we read that Jesus called Matthew to follow him. He saw him sitting in his tax collecting booth and he called him to follow him. And we read that Matthew got up, left his tax-collecting booth, and followed him. And the rest of the New Testament unfolds the fact that Matthew now, from that day forward, no longer lived for himself and the building of his own little kingdom, but lived for Jesus and the building of his kingdom and the advance of the good news about Jesus, so more and more people could experience the same thing he had through Jesus. Rather than being focused on his own kingdom, he was focused now on Jesus' kingdom and on people hearing the good news of that kingdom. Wow. says something about what the impact of the gospel ought to have on us too, don't you think? When Jesus calls us to follow him and saves us by his grace and by his mercy, our lives need to turn from being focused on our own little world and our own little kingdom and to be focused on Jesus' kingdom and his good news that needs to go to the world. And you'll find Matthew is busy doing that with the rest of his life. What about Matthew's readers? Who is he aiming to or writing to? aiming for and when he wrote? Well, it's believed that Matthew was primarily writing to his fellow Jews, to the people who didn't think much of him. He was writing to them. One of the reasons that we conclude that is Matthew's Gospel has more Old Testament quotes than any other Gospel, by a fair way. And so from that we conclude that Matthew is seeking to convince those who know the Old Testament Scriptures about Jesus. Now, Matthew's a fairly big book and uh, it can just seem like a massive book of chapters, and it is 28 chapters or so. What's a way that we can kind of understand how to break them down? I'll just give you a quick structure. For those of you who like taking notes and other things, um, this may help um, just see how Matthew kind of fits together. Uh, chapters 1 to 4 is about the announcement and arrival of King Jesus. The king and his kingdom. The king arrives. Chapter 5 to 15 is about the proclamation and the reception of Jesus the king. That is his teaching and how it was received and responded to. Chapter 16 to 27 is about the opposition and rejection of Jesus the king. Which obviously culminates in his suffering and his death. Chapter 28 is about the resurrection and triumph of Jesus the king and how his mission continues into the world now through his disciples as he reigns and pours out his spirit on them to advance the gospel so that's the structure now something really important for us to see about Matthew as well as we before we dive into the detail it's a bridge into the new testament it's a bridge from the Old Testament into the New Testament. So imagine, for, for example, reading the Old Testament, reading at the end, you get to the end of the book of Malachi, you flip the page and you start the book of Romans. Or you start the book of Acts. Or 1 Peter. It would be pretty hard to make sense of it, wouldn't it? It would be pretty hard to understand what's going on and why it's going on. So Matthew is hugely important for us then, to understand Jesus, to see who he is and to see what that means for us in terms of how we respond to him. So let's read some of Matthew together. Let's read verses 1 through to verse 17, and then we'll spend some time unpacking it. Verses 1 through verse 17 of chapter 1. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azar, and Azar the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of And Matthan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, the Christ, 14 generations. Be good to pray after that, I reckon, don't you? Let's pray. Father, we just come before you and. Yeah, it's easy for us to miss things in your word and we know that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So please take your spirit-breathed word and bring it home to us by that same spirit for your glory and for our good. Amen. Now, maybe you're guilty of this. Often when we read these verses, we might be tempted to skip over them. We might be tempted just to see a bunch of names and jump ahead into the story, so to speak. I want to get into the story. But you know what? That would be to miss the point of Matthew. Remember, he's got limited manuscript, so he didn't put these names in by accident. Matthew is actually telling the story from verse 1. Have a look with me again at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Do you notice, friends, in one verse, he takes a sweep, if you like, of Israel's history. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He takes a sweep of their history, and by drawing attention to two high points in their story, if you like, David and Abraham, he is actually starting to turn the spotlight on the identity and wonder of Jesus right up front. Right from verse 1. What's he trying to say about Jesus? What's he trying to get across to his readers? Well, from the first verse, he wants them to see that Jesus is their long-awaited, promised Messiah. Uh, He wants them to see that, in fact, the whole Old Testament story has been moving forwards to this point in history. He wants them to see that the Old Testament promises and prophecies from God point forward to this moment in time, to the advent, if you like, or arrival of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Matthew is intentionally taking us on a journey through the Old Testament in order to see Jesus more clearly. And so without looking at every detail, so you can, be, you can relax, we're going to jump on board, so to speak. The Old Testament story is the story of God seeking to glorify himself by establishing his kingdom. That's the story of the Bible. Now for us, we need to grasp something first if we're going to see that. And it's a hard thing for us to grasp because we are led to believe from very young that the whole world revolves around us. That it's about us. Even if we don't actually say it is, we function like it is. The Bible is actually about God. So for us to understand what's going on here, we've got to get rid of thinking it's about us and realise it's about God and what he's doing to establish his kingdom. The Bible's not about you or me. It's about God. Sure, we have a place in God's story, but there's only one hero. There's only room enough for one on centre stage and I'm sorry to disappoint you, but it's not us. It's God. God's, the, old, the Bible is about God seeking to glorify himself by establishing his kingdom. And as he does that, what we see uh, often again and again in different ways, as God establishes his kingdom at different points in history, is God's people in God's place under God's reign. And we're going to see that today. From the word go, God is busy establishing his kingdom. And one of the remarkable things, even in this genealogy, is he does it regardless of human sin and rebellion. He just does it. Nothing thwarts him. Nothing stops him establishing his kingdom. So have a look at verse 2 and through to verse 6. We've got this list of names that I've already read, which I won't read again. Managed to get through them once, that'll do. Um, but notice what we have. We've got the story of Abraham to David. And that, friends, is loaded with significance. Because as Matthew writes to his Jewish readers, any Jewish reader knows the story of the context of Abraham in Genesis 1-11. to They know that God created a good world, a perfect world, free from sin. They know he made humans in his image and his likeness to delight in him and enjoy him forever. They know that God created a perfect kingdom, Adam and Eve, in God's place, God's people, under God's blessing and reign. But they also know that Adam and Eve rejected their God and sinned against him. That as a result, humanity became corrupted with sin and the thoughts of their hearts were only evil continually, as Genesis says. They know that God brought judgment on them, that he kicked them out of the garden, out of his place, removed from them his life-giving presence and as a result, death entered the world. Matthew's readers also know that even after the great flood, after God, as it were, started again and and began a fresh start, not long after that, human rebellion gathered itself together and peaked in defiance against God to build a tower of Babel to make a name for themselves rather than delighting in God's great and glorious name. So if you read Genesis chapter 1 to 11, that's the context of Abraham. And at the end of chapter 11, I don't know about you, but, but you might be sitting there with antipi- anticipation thinking, what's God going to do now? <laughs> uh, on the edge of your seat, so to speak, yeah, will he bring judgment again? Will he wipe them from the face of the earth? But as we're thinking that, God makes a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, and it ought to blow our minds. Have a look with me at it. This is chapter 12, verse 1, straight after the tower. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonours you I will curse, and in, all the families, in you, all the families of the earth, will be blessed. See, God's busy establishing his kingdom again. You've got God's people, Abraham and his descendants, in a land, in God's place, who are going to be under God's rule and God's blessing. But notice what, notice what God has done here. He's bound himself in covenant promise. In the face of the height of human rebellion and sin, he binds himself in covenant promise to do what? To bring blessing to all the families of the earth, to all the nations, those same nations who are gathered there, through Abraham. Now you may have noticed the language of blessing and cursing here and sadly in our day confusion reigns around those two words in our Christian context, all sorts of crazy ideas are put together around curses and blessings which are more like witchcraft than biblical Christianity or the gospel. What does it mean? It's simply another way that the Bible speaks about judgment and salvation. The curse, when God curses, it brings, he brings his judgment. When he blesses, it means he brings his salvation. So do you see what God is promising here? Do you see what that means? He is promising to bring salvation or blessing to the world through a descendant of Abraham. This, friends, is God's promised global blessing. Now, maybe you're starting to see that the genealogy is a bit more than just a bunch of names. That Matthew has real intention here. And it doesn't stop there. Because in verse 6 to 11, we have the story of David, King David, through to the exile in Babylon. And it's not a great story, really, is it? If you read through the kings, it's an absolute mess. If you are one of Matthew's readers, you know the significance of King David. David. You know that Israel rejected God as their king and asked for a human king. You know that God graciously, even then, gave them a human king to rule over them under him. But you also know that there was one major problem with human kings. They were human And even the best of them had feet of clay, so to speak. Even the best, even King David, who's supposed to be the pinnacle of the kings of Israel. But did you notice that he's kind of mentioned here and his sins are actually mentioned here also in this genealogy, not explicitly, but implicitly in verse 6. And David was the father of Solomon by by, by, by the wife of Uriah. David had a kid to someone else's wife. Oh, by the way, then he got rid of the husband to kind of cover up his mess. So the best of the human kings were not exactly impressive at times, although David was a man after God's own heart, and he did confess his sin, and he did repent, and God restored him. But if you're one of Matthew's readers, you also know that God made a promise to David. Not just to Abraham, but to David. A promise to glorify himself, establishing his eternal kingdom, through David's line. And here it is in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God says to David, And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, when you die and we bury you, I will raise up offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish to the throne of his kingdom for a few months. For a few years. No, no, forever. Here we see God binding himself again because God never breaks his promises, remember. Binding himself again in covenant promise regardless of David's failings and all the king's failings. This time it's going to be, it's to David and he promises to establish his eternal kingdom through a descendant of David, through a king, through a Christ, through a Messiah, through an anointed one, which is what David was. And this king will be the deliverer of God's people. This, will be, this king will fight for his people. This kingdom king will triumph for his people. He will be a warrior king who rescues them and fights for them, defeating their enemies. He will be the one that Isaiah spoke of when he said, for unto us a son, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government, the kingdom, if you like, shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Yes, he's a descendant of David, but he's also called God of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And notice how it's going to happen. Last verse, the zeal of Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, will do this. In amongst all the mess. Here's a prophecy. God will glorify himself again by establishing his eternal kingdom. God's people will again be in his place, under his rule, under his king, under his salvation and his blessing. This is God's promised eternal kingdom. So we've seen God's promised global blessing and we've seen God's promised eternal kingdom here. Now hopefully you're really starting to see what Matthew is doing. That in his biography of Jesus, the story really does begin from verse 1. But there's another section here, isn't there? Before we get to verse 17. What's that about? Why is it important? It's from the deportation to the birth of Jesus. Well, it's about this. It's about deep longing and heightened expectation. In verse 12 to 16, it's the period of the exile. It's a devastating time for God's Old Testament people. A devastating time. The promises of God seem to have failed. Everything has unraveled. No longer are they God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. God has even said through the prophet Isaiah, they are no longer his people. They are not in his land, but they are again in slavery, in a foreign land, in exile. They're not under God's rule or blessing, but they're under foreign rule, and they are under God's curse and God's judgment. They can't even bring themselves to sing. They're so shattered, those who are the faithful remnant there in Babylon. Have a listen to this verse. You may know it, if nothing else, from a cheesy song from the 80s. By the waters of Babylon, it's not a happy song. It was a happy song in the 80s. This is not a happy song. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept. Wept. When we remembered Zion, God's place, where we were God's people, under God's blessing. On the willows there we hung up our lears, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And even when they eventually do return from Babylon and from captivity to rebuild and return to the land, it's not like it was before. There's just a remnant of them. There's not many of them. The temple is small by comparison to Solomon's. The circumstances don't reflect the grand things that God promised and prophesied about, which can only mean must one thing. If you're one of the faithful remnant there, you must be thinking, There's got to be more. There's got to be more. There's got to be something else up ahead. God must be going to do something else because surely this can't be it. Which is what people began to think and to believe and to long for. During this time between the end of the Old Testament and the New, there was about 400 years of prophetic silence. There was not a a word from God which in itself was a sign of God's judgment. When God doesn't speak anymore, it's not a good thing. So make sure you keep listening to the God who speaks. During this time, there was no word from God, and so many began to look at what God had already said in his prophets. And a heightened expectation around the promised Messiah began to build. Much of it wasn't that helpful, It was pretty focused on the Messiah coming and giving the Romans an absolute flogging and re-establishing the people of Israel, which wasn't what Jesus intended. But there was this heightened expectation and this deep longing nonetheless. Who will save God's people? Who will fulfil the promises that God has made? When will the Christ come When will God's anointed king appear? God's divine king who will deliver his people and establish his eternal kingdom. The book of the genealogy, or another word for genealogy is story. The book of the story of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Jesus is the one through whom God's salvation comes to the nations, to you and to me. Jesus is the one through whom God will establish his eternal kingdom. Jesus is the one through whom God will glorify himself, establishing his kingdom that will never, ever end. And Jesus will come, the anointed one, in the power of the Holy Spirit to redeem and to rescue and to save all who will turn to him, all who will look to him, all who will welcome him and bow down to him and put their hope in him. Remember what the angel said to Joseph, who was no doubt perplexed on a number of levels. Prior to the birth of Jesus, they say this says, Considered. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. There it is again. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, Isaiah 9, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Oh. Jesus is the king who saves. He's the king who saves. And this, friends, is good news for sinners like us. I don't know whether you've noticed the motley list of names in this genealogy. We've got uh, Tamar, who dressed herself up as a prostitute to sleep with her father-in-law and became pregnant. We've got Rahab, who was a prostitute, who helped the spies when they went into the land. We've got Ruth. We did a series on Ruth a couple of years ago. She's not a Jew. She's a Moabitess. She's one of the tradi- she's from the traditional enemies of God's people. She's outside. And then there's Then there's the wife of Uriah, this Bathsheba. And then there's all these kings and all these all these rebellious people. And yet God comes in the person of his son to save sinners. You would not include those if you were trying to write a nice, neat, tidy genealogy. You wouldn't have women to start with because Jewish men woke up every day and thank God that they weren't born a Gentile or a woman. What's Matthew doing? Right? You wouldn't have all these kind of corrupt kings and different people in there. It's deliberate. Saying this good news of Jesus is for everyone. Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave or free. It's good news for the world. They're all here. That's how it starts. Do you remember how the Gospel of Matthew finishes? Go into all the world and make disciples of the nations. Remember the promise to Abraham. He knew all the families of the earth. Will be blessed. Maybe when you're looking at your Bible later, you can look at Revelation chapter 7 and see what this did when you find a multitude from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue that no one can count because there's too many. Put your calculators away, they're not going to work. It's good news for sinners and it's good news for the world and it's good news that demands a response from us. Because the King has come. The Son who was given, whose name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, he's come. And he's come to save. But we need to turn to him. We need to bow our knees to him and welcome him and pin all our hope on him and praise him I want to take a moment now for us just to sit quietly and just reflect a little bit on the massive reality of what Matthew is showing us about Jesus the king who saves the band's going to come and then we'll sing to finish. But just take a moment in quietness. In your own heart, speak to God. Maybe there's some things you need to talk to him about that he's been putting his finger on. Maybe you just need to start praising him. You haven't been doing it that much. And today's a good day to get that going again with, with the help of his word and his spirit as we've gathered.